Well, thank you, Steve, and good morning, everybody, and happy uh, belated Thanksgiving. I uh, hope the tryptophan doesn't kick in and we can <laughs> make it through the, uh, the message this morning. So, um, for the last several weeks, we have been learning about faith from Hebrews chapter 11, and we've been learning about it from the particular perspective of the writer of Hebrews, which is that everything we have in Jesus under the new covenant is better than whatever existed before under the old covenant. Not that the old covenant was bad, it just wasn't complete, and it represented only a picture of the fullness of what was to come in Christ. And so this morning we'll be finishing chapter 11 by looking at the last eight verses, verses 32 to 40, and we're going to see that the same is true of faith, that it is best seen in Jesus. Now, chapter 11, if you remember, began with the definition of faith in verse 1, which said this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. And you may remember Daniel pointing out to us in the first sermon on this series that this was not a very clear definition of faith. So he read it to us out of three other translations besides the English Standard Version that we teach out of here. But remember how even after that, it was still a little bit confusing. Well, we are all in good company if we're still wrestling with how we would define faith. Listen to what the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said about that. There are many descriptions of faith, but almost all the definitions I have met with have made me understand it less than I did before I saw them. So at the risk of confusing us all even more, I'm going to start this morning by sharing one more definition that, like Hebrews 11.1, 1, also comes out of Scripture. And it's found in Romans 4.21. So to see it in context, let's look at Romans 4.21. Uh, 18 through 21. We should have that up on the screen for you there, or you can turn uh, to the Bible in front of you there. Romans 4.18 says, referring to Abraham, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And then here's the definition. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So, faith then is not just the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things unseen, as the writer of Hebrews said, but it's also being, as Paul says here in Romans, fully convinced that God is able to do that which he has promised. So every time we see the word faith in the Bible, we can think of it that way. But that's kind of a big mouthful, isn't it? Now that may be a, a more complete definition of faith, and it actually personally helps me understand it better, but it is still kind of cumbersome. Because the problem is, you see, we're trying to describe something that can't be seen. This isn't like describing a plant or an animal or a boat or a car or a, a substance like rock or fire or water. But if we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that there are plenty of things in this life that cannot be seen, but we still know and believe that they are real because we can feel the effects of them. 
Wind, for instance, is like that. In fact, Jesus uses wind to describe the Holy Spirit in John 3. You can't see wind, but you can feel it on your face on a windy day, or you can see what it does as it blows leaves across a field or bends a tall tree. Love is very similar as well. You can't see love, but we can certainly see its effect in our own lives and see what it makes other people do because of it. Well, faith, you see, is similar in that we can't see it, but people can experience it, and we can see its effects on them and in what it makes them do. And so it is in seeing those things that we come to understand what faith really is. So we're in a section of the Bible then, Hebrews 11, that explains faith to us by showing us the lives of people of faith. And so we're going to continue our study of faith this morning in that way by looking at verses 32 to 40. And you see, God wants us to have faith. It's an essential part of being a Christian. In fact, you can't be a Christian without it. Romans 5.1 says that we are justified by faith, which means that we are made right in God's sight by faith. Romans 4.23 says, that, or 4.23, excuse me, that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we need to know what faith is. But you see, since we can't see faith, it is best explained by observing what it does. Or as some have said, faith is better caught than taught. And so the writer of Hebrews, as he is explaining faith to us in this chapter, doesn't give us a whole lot of theology about faith. Rather, he gives us a whole lot of examples of people who lived lives of faith. In fact, out of 40 verses in this entire chapter, he only gives us one verse, verse 1, of trying to teach what faith is, which again says that it is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But then he gives us 39 verses about people of faith and the things that people of faith did because of their faith. And in the last verse, verse 40, he's going to mention that God has provided something even better for us. In fact, God has given us something that is perfect, which is we're going to see is the perfection of faith in Jesus Christ. For he is the perfect example of faith, and in him we have perfect faith. Jesus is the one to whom all these Old Testament examples of faith point towards. And so the title of this message then is Faith Perfected. So with that in mind, let's read our eight verses out of Hebrews 11, uh, starting in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flocking and even flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. 
all of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So, before we go through these verses in more detail, let's make a couple of big picture observations here. It's always important, I think, when we study scripture to not miss the forest through the trees. It's lots of fun to study the trees, and we do that quite well here, I think, but sometimes there's some messages in the forest as well that we need to see. So the first thing we might notice in a big picture perspective here is that every example listed here is of a person who did something or took action because of faith. And so that tells us that true faith is not just academic or intellectual. It is life-changing. It is belief to the point of acting upon it. Belief to the point of acting upon it. And this helps us understand then what James means in James 2.17 when he says that faith without works is dead. And why he says in the next verse, verse 18, show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. So while works do not cause faith and do not give us faith, they are the natural result of faith and they are the evidence of faith. Another big picture thing to note here is the enthusiasm of the writer of Hebrews at this point in the chapter. It's so evident here in the opening verse, verse 32, where he says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of. You see, there's a sense here of being overwhelmed with thinking about all these great examples of faith. And it's a reminder to us that there are so many examples of people of faith all throughout history. And that the list of names here in this chapter is not an all-inclusive list. In other words, there are so many more people that there's not enough time to mention them all. That's what he's telling us here. In fact, all of this is pointing towards what the author of Hebrews is going to describe in Hebrews 12.1 as a great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. But the examples of the lives of faith that we have surrounding us are not just historical, and they're not just from the past. They're also right here, from the present. There are great examples of faith right here in this room. Parents who have, by faith, had to deal with the death of a baby. Husbands and wives who, by faith, have had to deal with the loss of a spouse. Men and women who have, by faith, had to deal with the loss of a job and then sometimes wait a long time for a new one. Husbands and wives who have, by faith, been fighting to save their marriage. People of all ages who have, by faith, faced life-threatening diseases and learned to live with life-altering disabilities. And still others who have, by faith, overcome destructive addictions. Now remember, as both Daniel and Ryan were both very careful to point out to us, the faith of all the people listed in this chapter was far from perfect, and they were not perfect people. Each of them also messed up big time and had many failures and had many mistakes. So it also seems like the writer of Hebrews here is looking forward to something, perhaps to sharing something better with us than just all of these historical examples 
of imperfect faith seen in fallen human beings. And in fact, we see that down in verse 40, with the reference there to there being something better and to being made perfect, that that is exactly where he is going. So it's almost as if the Holy Spirit here is guiding the writer, which we know he does, and he's telling him, look, let's hurry up. This is enough time that's been spent on these imperfect examples of faith. Let's get to the perfect example, Jesus, who in Hebrews 12.2 we're going to see is referred to there as the author or founder and perfecter of our faith. So let's look now at some of the closing examples in this chapter of some of the specifically named people of faith that we have next in verse 32, and then we'll go on to look at some of the others where we don't even have their names. But in verse 32, we have Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. The first four, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, all have something in common in that they are all found in the book of Judges, which was a time when Israel had no king. They are all from that time period when, as both Judges 17.6 and 21.5 say, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So they were from a very spiritually dark time in the history of Israel, which tells us that faith is not dependent on having a faith-friendly culture. Let me repeat that again. Faith is not dependent on having a faith-friendly culture. And that should be very reassuring to us in the time in which we live. Faith cannot be snuffed out by the evil, sinful world around it or even by the sin in our own lives. In fact, as was true in the case of these four people, faith often shines brighter in the darkness. The faith of Gideon shined during a time when Judges 6.1 said that the people of Israel were doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they were living under the hand of their enemy, the Midianites. But Gideon, by faith, defeated them with an army of only 300 men. The faith of Barak shined during a time when Judges 4.1 again says that the people of Israel were doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they were living under the oppression of the Canaanites, who Barak, by faith, defeated. The faith of Jephthah shined, even though Judges 11, 1 through 3, says that he was the son of a prostitute, and he was hanging out with worthless companions. But by faith, he was used to defeat the Ammonites. The faith of Samson shined, even though he was in an illicit relationship with Delilah. God still used him to destroy an awful lot of Philistines. You see, all of these men were plagued by various sins, and they lived in dark times. But God was still able to use them when, by faith, they made themselves available to him. So faith overcomes both the hindrances of our own sin and the hindrances of the darkness around us. There's something else that all four of these people had in common, despite the sinful world they lived in and despite their own sin. And it's this. If you go back and read the accounts of them in the book of Judges, you will see that despite their own personal inadequacies, each of them very clearly had a moment when they heard from God. And they were called by him to go and do something for him. And after hearing that call, you'll also see then that the Holy Spirit came upon each of them 
to enable them to do it. So faith believes that the calling of God is also always going to be the enabling of God. Faith knows that God is good and he is not going to call us to do something that he is not also going to also give us the power to do. Well, brothers and sisters, that should really speak to us in 2023, for we have the word of God given to us here in our Bibles. So we have all the callings of God upon our lives available to us right here in the pages of Scripture. And we all, as New Testament believers, have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us to enable us to do whatever God has called us to do and to do it by faith. So we're without excuse. Every single one of us here can be mightily used by God wherever we are to do what he calls us to do. Now, the faith of David stands out to us for a number of reasons, probably most notably because he had the faith to believe that God through him and a little slingshot could strike down the mighty Goliath. The faith of David was much like that little boy in the Gospels who gave Jesus his few fish and few loaves of bread and saw it get used to feed thousands. You see, this tells us that God can take whatever little we give him in faith and then use it to do mighty things. So faith believes that God can do a lot with a little and that limited resources are never a problem for him. But another thing about the faith of David is that it enabled him to patiently wait for his turn on the throne of Israel because it took years from the time God had anointed David to be king before God sovereignly worked to allow him to actually be king. And all during the time, David had plenty of opportunities to dethrone Saul, his predecessor himself, so that the throne could go to him. But David patiently waited for God to do it. So faith believes that God's will will be done no matter what, and that it's best to wait for it to be done and not to jump ahead of God. We also see from this that faith believes that God's power will accomplish God's purposes and that nothing is impossible with God. Then there is the faith of Samuel, who in 1 Samuel 16 was used by God to select David to be the king of Israel after Saul. Even though to Samuel and everyone else, if you read that chapter, David did not appear to be a great candidate for king. There were many people bigger and stronger than he was. But Samuel had faith that God can see the heart and that he saw in the heart of David the right one to be king. And so that's the one that Samuel anointed. So faith knows that God can see things that we can't see. Faith knows that God has all the facts. Faith knows that God knows the beginning from the end as well as everything in between such that his will is always going to be what is absolutely best. After Samuel, verse 32 then mentions the prophets, who by faith did all the things mentioned in the next two verses, 33 and 34, like conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. 
Now, just as the writer of Hebrews said, time would fail us if we went through each and every one of these this morning and tried to cover them all. Or if we took the time right now to go through this and try to figure out who each and every person in there is that's being referred to. So we're only going to do a few of them and then look at one thing that they all have in common. But before we do that, let's pause here and note something else. If we remember who chapter 11 has covered so far in the first 31 verses, we'll recall that it was Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, and Rahab. Now, they all came out of the first six books of the Bible, from Genesis to Joshua. The four people we started with in our section this morning, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, all came out of the book of Judges, which is the seventh book of the Bible. Then David and Samuel can be found in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and David can be found also throughout all the Psalms. And then we have the prophets that are collectively referred to there in verses 32 to 34, and finally all those other nameless people of faith in verses 35 through 38 who come out of most of the rest of the Old Testament. So basically what's going on here is the writer of Hebrews has in one way or another included most of what was then the Bible in this chapter. Do you know what that tells us? That tells us that the entire Bible is a book of faith. And we can't read it or understand it unless we come to it in faith. Faith that it's going to reveal the one true God to us and his plan to redeem people through faith in his son. And faith that it is going to show us how to follow him. You see, at its core, the Bible is not an academic book or an intellectual book or even a history book, a poetry book, a song book, or a rule book. At its core, this is a faith book that tells us how by faith to find and follow Jesus. Now, one thing that all the people from verse 33 to the end share in common is this. They are all nameless. Sure, we can deduce who some of them may be, but that's not the point. Rather, it is that in their namelessness, we see something else about people of faith. And that is that people of faith are humble. They don't need to be named. Because the purpose of a faithful life is to glorify God, not ourselves. A person of faith is not loud or showy. They do not call attention to themselves. And they do not always have to be the center of attention, no matter what their position. They are glad to let others be in the limelight as long as God gets the glory. Now that kind of person will be viewed, as verse 38 says, as if they are not worthy because the world does not work that way. You see, the world is all about calling attention to self and self-promotion, almost to the point of self-worship. 1 John 2.16 calls it the boastful pride of life. You see, the person of faith doesn't call us to focus on them. They call us to focus on Jesus and if there's anything exemplary about their lives, they want it to point us toward Jesus, not themselves. 
Now let's look at a couple of the examples in here where it is pretty easy to figure out who these people might be. One is at the first part of verse 34 where it says they quenched the power of fire. Most likely this is a reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you have trouble with those names, I like the way Alistair Begg described it. He said when he was a little kid in Scotland, his mother taught him to remember those names this way when he was making his bed. Shake the bed, make the bed, and to bed we go. Okay, shake the bed, make the bed, and to bed we go. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we find them back in Daniel 3, verses 16 through 18. They are the ones who refuse to bow down and worship the gold statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. And as a result, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. And as we know, if you read that account, there was a fourth one who appeared with them in the furnace, whose appearance even Nebuchadnezzar said was like the son of the gods. But on the subject of faith, the thing to note about these three men is what they said back to the king in Daniel 3, 16 through 18, when he asked them how their God was going to deliver them from the fire. Let's look at what they said and see the faith that they had, Daniel 3, 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. See, fully convinced that God is able to do what he said he would do. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Look at this. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Wow, what an amazing faith. These men knew that God could deliver them from the fire, but they also knew that if he chose in his sovereignty, because his will is always best, not to do so, that to deny him and worship Nebuchadnezzar was not even an option, and that it would be better to burn. In other words, their lives were easily expendable for the sake of the one true God. What an amazing picture of unwavering, but again, humble, self-sacrificing, and God-focused faith. Just two more, the ones at the beginning of verse 37, who were stoned and sawn in two. Many people in the Old Testament were stoned for their faith, including in the New Testament. But most commentators believe that because of the pairing here with someone who was sawn in two, which we'll discuss in a moment, and because of the reference at the end of verse 38 to being put in a cave or a pit or a den, that the person being referred to here as being stoned was none other than the prophet Jeremiah. Both Jewish and Christian tradition hold that he was stoned to death. And the Bible also records that before that, he was cast into a pit, an abandoned cistern. Some translations actually say an abandoned cesspool, and he was left to die there. But here's the thing about Jeremiah. He was called by God to go preach repentance to God's people and to warn them of the coming Babylonian exile if they did not repent. And he faithfully did that for 55 years. But guess what? At best, only two people are known to have repented. So from an earthly standpoint, what he did by faith was not successful. It didn't work. And yet Jeremiah is held up as a great example of faith. 
Why? How could that be? Because you see, faith is not measured by whether it works. Rather, faith is measured by whether you did what God called you to do. We see a very similar thing in Romans 12, 18, where, where God says through Paul there that as much as it is up to you, be at peace with all people. <laughs> that means there's some people you can't be at peace with, but do your part to be at peace with them. Do it God's way. Love, forgive, try to reconcile. But if it doesn't work, you are still faithful. That's the point here. So Jeremiah did that, even though every step of the way he was fighting the winds of opposition and he never got to see much tangible fruit of his labor. If for no other reason besides doing it for the Lord, perhaps it was necessary for Jeremiah to keep preaching repentance for his own benefit, so that he did not stray. And just to finish off this point, both Jewish and church tradition hold that Isaiah was the one who was sawn in two at the end of his long ministry. And by faith, he was basically doing the same thing as Jeremiah, a rough contemporary of his just a few decades before, preaching repentance to God's people and warning them of the coming Babylonian exile. The tradition is that during the reign of King Manasseh, who was a very wicked king, Isaiah was hiding out from him in a hollowed-out tree. And when the king's men found him, the king ordered that that tree be sawn in two, thus sawing him in two and killing him. Isaiah's ministry lasted even longer, about 60 years. And like Jeremiah's ministry, it produced little fruit in terms of people repenting because the people still went off into captivity in Babylon. But what his ministry did do, brothers and sisters, was this. It gave us more prophecies about Messiah than any other Old Testament prophet, so much so that it is the most quoted prophetic book in the Gospels. Jesus quoted from it frequently. And many commentators, because it is so messianic, refer to it as the fifth gospel because it tells us so much about Jesus especially as the suffering servant that we have described in Isaiah 53. So the faith of Isaiah may not have been very successful in worldly terms, but in terms of doing what faith is supposed to do, pointing people toward Jesus, it was highly successful. Now before we move on, it's important to note that the power of faith is not in faith itself. We're not talking here in Hebrews 11 about people who had some kind of power of positive thinking or some kind of new age mindfulness. No, the power of faith was found in the God in whom they placed their faith. Faith was what connected them to God and his power. Now, while the people we saw earlier in chapter 11 did mighty works for God by faith, like Noah building an ark, Abraham starting a nation, Moses setting the people free, Joshua bringing down the walls of Jericho, or Gideon, Samson, and David winning these great battles, the nameless people referred to here at the end of the chapter all had something else in common, which is that they suffered for God by faith. Some of them were victorious over the trials that brought about their suffering. Others were not victorious over them, but rather they were victorious in going through them. In other words, some of them escaped their trials and others did not. 
but they remained faithful in the midst of their trials. But for both groups, in the way that God measures things, their faith in their suffering counted just as much as the faith of all these other named people who did great things for him. They're listed right here in the same list. And that ought to be of great encouragement to any of us here who are suffering in some way because of our faith. Now, it's no accident that it is at this point in the writing about faith that the writer of Hebrews brings up the subject of suffering through trials because he is about to reach the pinnacle or the culmination of his discourse on faith and the ultimate, the ultimate example of faith which is of one who suffered through a horrific trial both to do the will of the Father and to save us is of Jesus. Jesus, the one whom the writer of Hebrews is going to refer to in Hebrews 12.2 in this way, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. So the ultimate example of suffering by faith through a trial is Jesus. And all of these people were pointing toward what he would one day do. And notice this from chapter 12, verse 2 that we just read. What was it that by faith, it says, got Jesus through that trial? It was joy. It was the joy of probably three things. Doing the Father's will, the joy of saving us, and no doubt the joy of getting to go back home to heaven. In like manner, it had to be joy that also got all these other people through their trials. Not the joy of saving us, but the joy of the presence of the one who would one day eventually save us and them. Didn't David proclaim in Psalm 23 that even when it came to death, he would fear no evil because God would be with him? Didn't Isaiah say in Isaiah 40 that those who wait for the Lord will rise up like wings of eagles? And in Isaiah 43, that though we pass through water and pass through fire, they will not overwhelm us, for God will be with us. Wasn't the one who stood with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and who burned brighter than the fire, none other than Jesus himself in an Old Testament pre-incarnate appearance? And if not that, one of his angels whom he had sent to minister to them? What did Jesus say in the last words of the Gospel of Matthew as he was leaving his disciples behind on this earth, knowing full well that all of them would suffer tremendously and die for him? But this, he said, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, God is present with his people when they are walking by faith and doing his will, even if that means they are suffering for him. So what great joy that ought to bring us. The final encouragement that is given here for those who suffer because of their faith is that the world is not worthy of them. You see, these people did not derive their identity from the world or from what it thought of them. Rather, they lived as citizens of another world, God's heavenly kingdom. That is the place that they identified with. You know, the world often criticizes Christians, people of faith, by saying that they are so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly use. But the truth is that in God's eyes, 
you and I are of no earthly good until we become heavenly-minded. Now, for the culmination of all that this has been pointing towards, verse 39 of our text tells us that none of these people in chapter 11 received the fulfillment of what was promised, meaning they were all looking forward to it by faith. And verse 40 says that God has provided something better for us as New Testament believers, which actually makes us perfect, which in context must be referring to a perfect faith. Now, since the Old Testament points toward Christ, and the writer of Hebrews moves to Christ in the first two verses of the next chapter, chapter 12, this something better, this something perfect that he's talking about here has to be none other than Jesus himself. So there's two things we need to unpack from that here before we close. The first is that in contrast with all the people of faith mentioned in chapter 11, Jesus lived a life of perfect faith. And the second is that as people who are in him, which is part of what it means to be a Christian, God sees us as also having perfect faith. Isaiah himself wrote in Isaiah 61.10 that Messiah would clothe his people in robes of righteousness. Remember how Daniel and Ryan kept reminding us that all of the people listed here also were flawed and failed in some things quite miserably, so much so that Daniel even said that we could not only refer to this chapter as the hall of faith, but also as the hall of failure. So while the people listed in here had a flawed faith because they all fell in one way or another, Jesus had a perfect faith. All of the acts of faith that we saw people do here, Jesus did even more so and even better. In fact, not just better, but best. You know, something put on my heart this, what I call the Home Depot analogy. Ever gone to Home Depot to buy a paintbrush or a screwdriver and it'll always say good, better, best, right? And they, they go up in price accordingly. Well, that's kind of what we have here. We're now looking at the best, only actually we should add a new category that I guarantee you'll never find at Home Depot, and that is perfect, okay? Good, better, best, perfect. That's what we're looking at here. And you won't find that in those paintbrushes or screwdrivers. Daniel said last week that Jesus modeled faith perfectly. So think of these comparisons of all the people we've gone through and then compare them to Jesus. Abel's faith led him to make a better sacrifice to God, but the faith of Jesus enabled him to be the sacrifice for us. Noah's faith led him to build an ark for protection from God's judgment, but the faith of Jesus enabled him to take God's judgment upon himself for us. Enoch's faith led him on a walk with God straight into heaven, but the faith of Jesus enabled him to be our access to heaven. Moses' faith led him to set his people free from slavery to Egypt, but the faith of Jesus enabled him to set us free from slavery to sin. Joshua's faith led him to bring down the walls of Jericho and to take his people into the promised land of Canaan. But the faith of Jesus enabled him to tear down the wall of separation. Remember, tear down the veil that separated us from the Holy of Holies, that wall of separation between us and God, and then to take us to heaven. Rahab's faith led her to trust in a scarlet rope for deliverance from destruction, 
But the faith of Jesus enabled him to be the scarlet robe that saves us from damnation. The faith of these judges we looked at this morning led them to do great acts of service for God in a difficult time. But the faith of Jesus enabled him to be the greatest servant the world has ever known. David's faith led him to slay a giant, but the faith of Jesus enabled him to slay sin, Satan, and death. Samuel's faith led him to be able to see David's heart, but the faith of Jesus enabled him to give us new hearts. And finally, the faith of all the unnamed people listed at the end of the chapter led them to suffer great things, but the faith of Jesus enabled him to suffer for something even greater, our salvation. So Jesus had a perfect faith, a faith that was able to get him through his mission here on earth with victory and without sin, and a faith that got him safely home to the Father. And as people who are in Christ, people that the Bible says are clothed with his righteousness, people that Isaiah said in Isaiah 1.18, whose sin has marked them as red as scarlet, but who have been transformed to be as white as snow, God sees us as having the perfect faith of Jesus. And that faith will also get us safely home to the Father. For by grace we have been saved, through faith. Amen? But note, all these people in the hall of faith, both named and unnamed, lived before the coming of Jesus. They lived before he came from heaven to earth to live a perfect life of faith and to die as a perfect and final sacrifice for our sin and to then rise from the dead to give us new life. But they knew he was coming and they looked forward to the fulfillment of the promise of his coming. From the time of Abraham until the time of the birth of Jesus and all in between, people of faith longed for his coming. Jesus even said in John 8, 56 that Abraham longed to see the day of his coming. Job said in Job 19.25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Luke 2.25 tells us that a righteous and devout man, Simeon, who was at the temple the day that Joseph and Mary took the baby Jesus in with them when they made a purification offering of two turtle doves, that this man, Simeon, was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And he got to see him. Not only that, but Luke 2.38 tells us that there was a prophetess there at the same time named Anna who was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And that after seeing Jesus, she went out of the temple to speak of him to all who were also waiting. So in faith, all of these people Lots of people over hundreds of years participated in things that pointed toward his coming, like temple worship, sacrifices, feasts, and Passover, which were all part of the old covenant. But we who live after his coming are partakers of a new and a better covenant, which Jesus said was in his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And finally note that Hebrews 11.40 refers to this as being something that God has provided. That means that he has done all the work necessary for us to have our sins forgiven and to be clothed in righteousness so that we can be with him now and forever. But something that is provided does no good if it is not received. 
And so if you're with us this morning, whether in person or listening online, and you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we would urge you to receive right now what has been provided and all the blessings of faith in him, many of which we've heard about this morning, will be yours. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for faith. Lord, your word tells it is a gift from you. Lord, I pray you would continue to pour it out on this place and the people of this place and even the people, Lord, yet to bring the people of faith together here from all tribes, tongues, and nations that we might gather together in faith to worship you, to sing praises to you, this one, the God who has provided it all in and through his son, Jesus. And it's to him we point and to him whom we give the glory. Amen.